0: Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 236 and part 2 of my conversation with Adams State University in Colorado percussion professor Melinda Liosi. Well, we're back in classes this week after last week's completely needed spring break, and we're ready to push towards the end of the semester. We're also going through and finishing up our interviews for the Marching Mizzou leadership team for our band next season. That process, while it's pretty long, is one I really enjoy because with a band that hovers right now around 300 members, it's one of the few times we really get to know and learn a lot about our students. And with the lack of travel we've had recently, that time is really well spent and it's always very exciting. So, that's going on. It's time to push through, and let's move ahead to part two with Melinda. Last week in part one, which I hope you've already heard, Melinda talked about her current job at Adams State, her previous job at Graceland University in Iowa, growing up in Florida and Georgia, and her young career in ice skating. Today in part two, we'll hear about her undergrad at Central Florida, her master's at Florida State, her doctoral progress at Indiana University, as well as an extended and fun edition of the final segment. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on February 24th and March 1st, 2021. And it begins right now. You go FSU for undergrad?
1: So undergrad actually went to um, the University of Central Florida
0: in Orlando. Hmm. How aware of that program were you before you go?
1: Zero percent. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess kind of tying into the fact that I've always had other interests and that Mm -hmm. I've always kind of, you know, liked a lot of things. When I applied to college, I was a first generation student. Um, Mm -hmm. I was the first one in my immediate family to, to go to college. And my parents are so supportive. Um, And they were behind me 100%. But they had no idea how to help me with the nuts and bolts of like actually registering actually getting auditions actually, you know, so they were there to visit campuses with me. They, you know, I mean, they're, they're awesome. Um, But as far as like, you know, even knowing that I had to audition, I had no idea. And I also was so confused about what I wanted to do. I applied to five different colleges, and each place I applied, I applied with a different intended major. So, for whatever reason,
0: what, what I, were the majors? I'm curious. So,
1: so, at at UCF, I applied as a sociology major, having never taken a sociology class in high school.
2: Okay.
1: Just picked it. Mm-hmm. Um, at Florida State, I applied as a music therapy major. Hmm. At uh, Savannah College of Art and Design, I applied as an art major. And also at Rollins College in, in the Orlando area, I applied as an art major. Like visual arts, like painting and, you know, charcoal and, and stuff like that. And then I think I applied at one other place. It might it might have been FS or UF. It might have been University of Florida, maybe as like undecided or something. Anyway, so I had this whole array of things, you know. Florida State called me and they said, Hey, um, we noticed that you applied as a music therapy major, but we don't see you on the audition list. Like when's your audition? And I was like, audition. (laughs) I don't know. What do I have to do that? So me and my dad drove up to Tallahassee and, um, I brought a marching snare with me. And instead of playing the typical rep that you would play at an audition, I played uh, the Cavalier's snare part to some cadence that I had like learned from my high school drum instructor. And at the time, actually, um, John Parks, I want to say was like on a sabbatical or something like that. And so it was John Beck who like filled in for him for a semester. And that was the semester that I auditioned. So John Beck, you know, I come in with this marching snare drum with taped marching sticks. And I'm sure at Florida State, which of course, years later, I realized, oh my gosh, that's an amazing pro music program. And I roll in there with a marching snare. What was I doing? But he, he could see, I guess that I had talent. And I remember he gave me a couple other things to play. And I had a little, um, mallet excerpt prepared and we did recite, read a little duet together and, and I got in. Um, but at that point I decided to go to UCF. Uh, it was a little closer to home Um, You know, I ended up going to Florida State for my master's, but UCF was the right choice for my undergrad. And I did not start as a music major. I spent three and a half years at University of Central Florida doing various things. I was marching in the marching nights, so I was still playing. And I was also marching drum corps at the time. So my hands were in great condition, but I wasn't a music major. But after meeting all the drumline people, I was around all the music majors all the time. And I just started to see what they were doing, you know, oh, this percussion ensemble thing looks pretty cool. Oh man, they're like, you know, going to these other colleges and, and doing performances, blah, blah, blah. Like, this looks really cool. Like, I didn't think I wanted to do music, but I think I do. And so I switched in to be a music major at UCF my um, spring semester of my junior year. And at that point I knew it was going to add extra time. You have to go through the sequence of theory and lessons and et cetera. But I, I really, at that point was really solidified on what I wanted to do. And so I added the extra time. So total, I was at, um, university of central Florida for seven years.
0: Whoa! for the undergrad. Yes. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, I, it's not for everyone. <laughs> it, it was definitely a long time, but I, first of all, I always felt thankful because I really knew that I wanted to do music. And I think a lot of music majors that start off as music majors have that existential moment where they're like, what am I doing? Am I, should I be even be doing this? And I didn't have that because I had already done all the other stuff. And I was like, yeah, that's not fulfilling. No, I, I, this is what I want to do. So I kind of went through that first and I never doubted, like the second I went to music, I absolutely never doubted it. Um, of course there were times where it got difficult or it was a lot of work or, but, but it was never like, did I do the right thing? Um, and also, um, I had a scholarship, uh, at the time Florida had this bright Futures scholarship and it, it would actually cover a hundred percent of your tuition for five years. If you had a certain GPA out of high school and a certain SAT score. And I was lucky enough to get that the first five years when I was kind of figuring everything out was completely paid for, um, by the bright, bright futures program. And then, so I ended up paying, I think out of pocket only for two years. And then at that point it was still in state tuition. So it was fairly affordable even to spend that amount of time there.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: And I lived with Disney employees. So I went to Disney like every day.
0: <laughs> All right. <laughs>
1: Not every day. Sure once a month at least
0: (laughs) yeah on you know a tuesday morning for you know four hours probably
1: you know the the thing that i always tell people is like so disney employees at the time i don't know how it is now but they got a what's called a main gate pass and so they could get themselves plus three other people in six times a year and my two roommates were both (laughs) disney employees at the time and then all of their friends were disney employees so if they used all their main gate passes They'd know five other people who had their main gates. So, I mean, really, when I say that on a Wednesday night, we could just look at each other and go, you want to go to Epcot for dinner? We would actually do that. Yeah. <laughs> and it was great. I mean, when I actually had to pay for a Disney ticket years later, I like was flabbergasted. <laughs> i like, what? This is expensive.
0: <laughs> you didn't know how good you had it.
1: I really did not. I really did not. <laughs>
0: Whoa, that's that's impressive. While you're at UCF, I mean I mean what's known about that? First of all, it's like it's an it's the largest school in the nation undergrad, I believe, or I think combined maybe. It's but huge. It's
1: huge. <laughs> I mean, I think at the time I was going there they had over 50,000 and I think now they're well over 60,000 students.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Um and but also it's known because it's uh, was that under Jeff Moore? Yes. Okay. You
1: know, I know that this is audio and the people won't be able to see this, but yeah. I do, I do have this Jeff Moore bobblehead.
0: Oh, that's amazing.
1: Yeah. So oh my gosh. Gonna, if you'd like me to send you a picture of this or something, Yeah,
0: yeah we'll. we'll have I to can do definitely
1: it. do that. But I do have to say like, aside from the, you know, hilarity of this bobblehead, Jeff Moore is just my biggest mentor. Absolutely. And um, I mean, a lot of the things that I do, Um, teaching wise and the way that I kind of have my curriculum set up and the way that I like to, um, run my studio is just, is just from the ideas that I learned from him. He's just one of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, you know, if I have a big decision to make, I get on the phone with Jeff Moore, um, first and foremost. Um, you know, when I, uh, got the job at Graceland, I called him, oh my gosh, I got my first job. What do I do? And, um, and you didn't even
0: know you were, you were going to be a, a division chair yet. And And it's like, now you have that with him too.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, so he, um, yeah, I mean, he is fantastic. And then I, I get, I get to go back to the university of central Florida, um, and help with their summer percussion Institute, which of course, now they have, um, Dr. Thad Anderson. Right and Kirk Gay as well, who, I mean, that is just like a powerhouse percussion program for sure. And Jeff Moore is much more in the administrative side of things now. When I was there, it was definitely my lessons were mostly with Mr. Moore. Um, And then I would have, uh, you know, orchestral stuff with Kirk Gay. And then the last year that I was there is when Dr. Anderson... Thad Anderson got hired on. And, um, and so I had maybe one semester of lessons with, um, with Thad, who's also just awesome.
0: And he's a UCF grad too, right?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: So the, you get the, um, like the full, the full gamut of the, like the rubrics, right? Like all the, like the checkpoints and all the kind of the, the system that I know Jeff has set up to just like, we're going to make you the the most well-rounded on the the most range of instruments. And here's the plan.
1: Yes. And when I got to Graceland, I had written this curriculum that was very similar and it was set up like a UCF curriculum, which of course Jeff Moore also got some ideas from UNT where he went, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Texas and they do have that very strict curriculum barrier system that, you know, UCF also has. Um, I got to Graceland in this tiny town in Iowa with my three percussion majors. And they looked at that curriculum and were like ready to cry. <laughs> yeah. So I, I must say that I have changed it from that system. I believe that that system really works, but I have altered some things and, and made some things my own. For example, we used to do a one-week system. So you have two serones, 13 pages out of the Wilcoxon, you know, two etudes from the savage rudimental workshop, this many rudiments, this and that. Oh, also learn your recital stuff and come in and play it this week. And then next week, the same thing, but all new material. So I quickly realized with the kind of students that I'm dealing with, um, smaller areas, rural areas, um, that was really overwhelming for them. And it was, it was actually not helping them. Um, so I went to a two week system where the first week is almost like the rehearsal and the second week is the performance. We kind of look at it that way. So, you know, let's say the first week they have a ton of snare practice time, but they really didn't hit mallets. The two-week system allows them to then say, you know what, let's focus all on mallets next week. Um, And actually, I sometimes incorporate a three-week system into it too, where the third week we touch on recital and jury material. So that system just for the students that I'm dealing with at this moment has worked a lot better because of course the, the university of central Florida, like we've talked about has about 60,000 students, huge percussion studio. That's only gotten bigger since I was there. And, um, that was a great system for that type of student, you know? Um, but it doesn't, it didn't work with the studios that I was dealing with. So I kind of, I took that idea and then adapted it a little.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's a smart way to do it, and I mean the other part of it. I know that that that's a factor, or that's a thing that happens at UCF, is that that also ends up weeding out a lot of students because of the of the difficulty. Which is again, when you're when you're at a small program, that that cannot be the goal because you won't have anyone to teach. <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah, you're really meeting people where they are, and you know what's interesting is. Man, UCF has just become such a strong percussion program. When I was there, um, it was a strong program, but it wasn't quite at the level that it's at now. Um, and, you know, I I didn't play four mallets at all. Uh, I stepped into the UCF studio having never held four mallets. And that's one thing that Jeff Moore was amazing at. Like, he saw the potential and he said, yep, all right, we got a lot of work to do, but... Um, you're in, like, let's do it, and and um, you know, one of my friends who I'm not sure if has ever been a guest um for your podcast, but Joe Moore the third,
0: oh, yeah, I've had him on oh, a few times, yeah,
1: yeah. So so Joe, I mean, talk about an amazing player. Yeah, Joe walked into the studio same as me, having never held four mallets, and now to look at that and say some studios might have turned him away. And then to look at what he's become now and what he's given to the percussion world, you know, I mean, the compositions that he writes, the marimba stuff that he writes, the, you know, his students placing at PASIC competitions, et cetera, et cetera, um, that, that was something that I was really thankful for. Um, And then, you know, the bigger programs that I went to, Florida State, Indiana, also had so many reasons that they were amazing programs. But at those kind of programs, they're gonna turn someone away who's not playing four mallets. You can't audition at Indiana University and not play four mallets. It's just right. not gonna happen. Yeah. It's a different situation. So for me, I just felt really lucky at the order that I did things because had I really gone into Florida State at that time, I probably wouldn't have been really ready to be there. Um, so going to UCF for my undergrad, I was really thankful for that. Um, and then you know, mo- moving to Florida State and moving to, to Indiana.
0: Yeah. You know, because you were there uh, for as long as you were, you like were involved in the marching band and then you could just not do it while you were a major.
1: Yes. (laughs) That was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was a really great thing. I I did the marching nights for two years, my first two years, which was 2003 and 2004, and I marched drum corps 2004, 2005, 2006 and I became a music major in the spring of 2007, I think. <laughs> so it kind of all worked out where if I had been trying to march drum corps, go to camps, and then come back and, you know, be like putting on recitals, I I would have never slept.
0: <laughs> right. What, uh, where did you march drum corps?
1: So uh, in 2004, I marched at Magic of Orlando. Okay. Of course, they were in Orlando at the time. They've since... Um, you know, financially shut down. Um, but, yeah, I marched there in 2004. And then in 2005 and 2006, um, one of the members of the studio, you might have also talked to this person, I'm sure, Louis Rivera? Uh,
0: I have not. I mean, I've been in touch with him, but yeah. Okay. I'm not, I'm
1: not, yeah, not. so um, Lewis at the time, was in the UCF studio. He said, hey, uh, I'm going to be snare-tacking at Carolyn Crown this year. You should come out and audition. And I was like, sweet. I'm not ready for that. That, (laughs) So I, um, had some private lessons. Uh, I, I really worked on snare technique. Um, and, uh, and then went up and auditioned at crown and I marched at crown in 2005 and 2006.
0: You basically marched like the last three years you were eligible kind of.
1: Yes. Actually I didn't march my age out year. So I would have had 2007. Mm -hmm. Um, But at that point, I was really trying to focus more on mallets, uh, uh, which at that point, you know, I I just hadn't had enough time. I mean, I had been playing marching snare since seventh grade Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and and bass and and et cetera. And so I kind of I remember it's another thing I talked to Jeff Moore about at the time. Should I do another year? I want to do my age out. But what am I really going to get out of it? that I haven't gotten yet in the last three years. Um, And can I do something else with my summer that would be fulfilling and that would be a good thing, you know, or am I going to spend all these hours at drum corps? For me, the right decision was to not do my age out. And that is totally a personal decision. Other people, I know people who marched drum corps for five, six, seven years, and that's, you know what I mean? I mean, it just for me at the time and with what I really had to catch up on with marimba, um, I, I wanted to to take the year off and focus on some other things.
0: So what did you end up doing that summer?
1: Definitely did, um, take some time to learn some marimba literature. Um, actually I used to house sit for, oh. uh, for, uh, Jeff Moore and his wife, Mindy, and he has a Yamaha five octave in his practice room at home. And I took some time to learn some rep that I had wanted to play for a while. And then I used that rep, um, the following year in the, um, one of the competitions that happened at UCF. And I think I was a finalist in that. And then I learned a concerto competition, um, you know, piece of rep that I was a a finalist in that as well. So I did, I did use my time wisely. I was also probably working, um, in the summer of two thousand and seven, although I am probably going to tell you the wrong place, but I think it was Panera Bread. Mm-hmm. So I was probably making a little bit of money, which was important too, because of course at Drumcore you spend money; <laughs> you definitely aren't making any money,
0: right? Right.
1: And so, yeah, definitely all things that I needed to do.
0: When you are finished, you you get you said you get an Ed degree, right? But do you do you teach or do you go into the masters?
1: So I um, I went straight into the masters. Uh, when I did my K through 12, um, teaching, you know, internships, I knew that I didn't want to teach K through 12. (laughs) That's, that's really what I learned during my internships. Now I liked them. I enjoyed them. But for me, I knew that I wanted to go a little deeper into the playing side. Um, and that I was, I was not a hundred percent sure that I wanted to teach college at that point, but I knew that. Band directing in either middle or high school was not for me. Um, The time commitments, especially if you have a marching program, I just had too many other things in my life that I also wanted to do. I just thought I would have no life, you know. So um, I loved teaching elementary. And at that point in my life, I thought I'll either teach elementary school or I'll go all the way to through my doctorate and and teach college. I don't want to do in between. Um, yeah, I loved elementary. I loved that there was a singing element to it Um, Mm, because, because I like vocals and I like singing. Um, I really like working with younger kids. So that was, that was kind of the plan at that point was I could teach elementary. Let me go get my master's and see what happens and then see where I'm feeling after that.
0: Got it. Um, why, how, So you auditioned originally at Florida State, but what, what drew you back there?
1: So, um, you know, Jeff Moore and, um, and John Parks have a good working relationship. Um, John Parks would come down to the concerts, uh, you know, drive down. Um, similarly, we would go up to Tallahassee and and do things. So there was definitely a relationship there. And I just met John Parks and, um, really liked him. If you've ever seen like his tambourine clinic, He is the funniest, most engaging person. Yeah, And so, you know, after a few clinics where he would come down, I was just like, well, he's awesome. I've got to, you know, I've got to apply at Florida State, even if I'm going to apply at some other places. Um, And I did. I applied at some other places. I, I was really really drawn to ohio state actually mm. the program at ohio state i, I saw their PASIC performance i think it was 2007 their showcase performance mm-hmm. and i just fell in love with the rep that they did and the studio and the idea of living outside of florida at that time was like ooh you know something new uh and then i had just a hard decision to make um, and you know at that point I, I knew that I was going to get a good experience at, bo- at both programs. And I knew also that Florida State was in-state tuition for me. And I went to Florida State, and I think it was definitely the right decision. Um, and, you know, John Parks was awesome, and I still have, you know, am in contact with him and, um, and have a really good relationship with him as well.
0: Was that Ohio State performance, was that one they did? Did they play for a silent movie?
1: It might have been. The, the things on that program that I was really drawn to was a, a, a quartet called Conservatory Garden. It's just a multiple percussion quartet that it was so groovy and was like unlike anything I'd heard at the time. And I was like, that is awesome. And then they did an arrangement. Uh, Joe Krieger, one of the teachers there who's married, married to Susan Powell, yep. did an arrangement of um, Reich... Reisch's New York counterpoint. Hmm. And instead of clarinets, he did it for um, vibraphones and marimbas. And there were players on either side, just using two mallets and playing on either side of the vibe in the marimba. And then they had a projection of a like visual component that went along with the music. And when I saw that, I was like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, wow. I, I mean, I was so blown away and you used to be able to find a little snippet of that on their website, and they—they've since removed it. I mean, it's been—it's been so many years <laughs> since then, but man, it just stuck with me. Um, they also did a Tobias uh, Broström piece that—that that also had a visual component to it. Um, maybe vaguely, I remember a silent movie, and maybe Joe Krieger playing some drum set, like a, like a really old school, like early 1900s style, like trap set. Um, But I was so blown away by just certain numbers on the program. Like that rice just stuck with me. And it was like most of the reason that I auditioned there. I was just so blown away by it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Did you know that you were just going to be at these these giant universities. Like it's really a, like, it's really hilarious. Like I went to the largest and then I and then I auditioned at the second largest and then I got into the third largest. <laughs> you,
1: know? you know what? I and it's so interesting because since then in my teaching career <laughs> I've taught at a place that was under a thousand student enrollment and then under we have a just under three thousand student enrollment here at Adams. Yeah. And it's like talk about The opposite. (laughs) You know, what was interesting about UCF, I mean, of course, it was a giant school, a big campus, you know, in Orlando, huge, vibrant city.
2: Yeah.
1: But the studio itself was about 15 to 20 people. Okay. And it was a very, like, close-knit, homey experience in the music department. So, of course, it was this large university, but it really still felt so close-knit and, like, family-like, um... And so you really didn't get lost there. Um, and Florida State, of course, huge music school, but again, a slightly smaller percussion studio so that you really felt like you were a part of a smaller studio. You got to know all of your studio mates really well. You know, there's still some of my best friends that I met at Florida State. Um, and then at Indiana, I think that's the first time I really experienced like Oh my gosh! There's 60 percussionists here. <laughs> I mean, this is huge. Like it's giant.
0: Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> All large schools, at least. All oh yeah. Large, give you that.
1: Schools. I went to huge schools for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: When you get to John Parks, what does he see that you're? I don't. Know, I don't know. Missing, but what? What? What do you feel like? are the, the things that he saw that you, you were like, this is the things that we, we need to get you caught up on?
1: Uh, 100% orchestral excerpts. Yeah. If, if I had not gone to Florida State, worked with John Parks on orchestral excerpts, uh, there's no way that I, I would have been competitive to, for example, audition at Des Moines Symphony and, and get on the auxiliary list. Um, now, UCF, an awesome program. I can't say enough good things about it. And Kurt Gay is a fantastic orchestral percussionist, fantastic timpanist, you know, plays with Brevard Symphony, um, plays with the Orlando Phil, plays with the Disney orchestras. Like he is, you know, one of the best. Um, But we had so much other stuff in the curriculum. We had one semester to do orchestral excerpts. And so when you have one week to do Porgy and Bess, (laughs) and then that's it. I mean, you're going so quickly and you're studying other instruments at the time. And it's just really a sort of a broad overview. Whereas with John Parks, we spent multiple weeks on Porgy and Bess. We spent multiple weeks on Scheherazade. You know, I had never played really Scheherazade, any of the snare excerpts, until I got to Florida State. Um, And so it wasn't that it was a deficit of UCF. It was just that we covered it very broadly. And at Florida State, I could look at it in a smaller lens and really dig into it. And, um, and John Parks is just really good at getting you to be competitive in that orchestral world and in those auditions. And so I definitely um, owe, you know, being able to play with any of the orchestras I've played with, with Tallahassee Symphony or with Des Moines Symphony to John Parks and the work that I was able to do with him on, on excerpts for sure.
0: Now, would you say that John Parks swears a lot or swears a whole lot? <laughs> um,
1: I feel, <laughs> I feel that the people that studied with John Parks just a hair ahead of me. Not the John Parks that you're referring to. Okay.
2: <laughs>
1: and um, and you know, at the time that I came in, he had. Piped down just a bit. Yeah. But I got a small glimpse of like the intensity of John Parks when we um, performed at PASIC in 2011. Yeah. yeah. The semester we were preparing for PASIC was like, oh my gosh, you better be prepared for percussion ensemble. <laughs> yeah. Or you'll get kicked out. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I saw, of course I won't name names, yeah, yeah. but I saw some players come in unprepared and get kicked off the part that day. And it's like, I mean, it was cutthroat. <laughs> so there's definitely that intense side but he also has a kinder you know side that I think I got to see a little bit more of um you know I I babysat his kids maybe he just really didn't want to piss me off <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's funny <laughs> well I, I mean I have had him on the show so I uh it was he like he started off he 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 said a hole like real early and it was hilarious and I was like, all right, yes. <laughs> Let's do this. No, it was no, I I that's I it's only because it's it was hilarious. Like, you know, I I forget who it was. Um somebody uh I think it was like kind of the what you're saying, like somebody from like the kind of the second wave of teaching with him who uh they had been told by an a, an earlier student of parks that he is mellowed or something like that. And they were like, what? <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> oh yeah. I got to see, I got to see some of those moments. Definitely yeah. during the basic tour, you yeah. know, we, we left Tallahassee and we toured in basically vans and trucks all the way up to Indianapolis. Yeah. And we stopped along the way and did concerts and I got to see some intense moments and luckily they were not directed at me
0: (laughs) really intense but but like it's it's with a very specific goal oh yeah Um, you know and and you're you know you also have that he's he because he's done so much audio work that like his ears are tuned in ways that lots of people's aren't
1: I watched him one time preparing Stephen Keener for um an audition Mm -hmm. Steven Keener is now the principal percussionist. Oh gosh, it's in the Pacific Northwest might be the Portland symphony, something like that. I mean, he's, he's made it. And and before that he was playing with new world and he went to Boston. I I mean, all, you know, he's the best of the best. Right. And as he was preparing for him for an audition in front of the entire studio, we were all just sitting there and he put Steven behind the timpani and he said, all right, Um, let's tune, you know, D on, on whatever the, you know, 29.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: Cool. He said, all right. Um, in your head, go up a fifth, go down a minor third. Now take that, go down a fifth from that, go up a second and then, uh, go up a minor seventh and play me the note, play me the note. Come on, play me the note. And I mean, he was like doing all this calculation in his head trying to find the note. And it was like, holy moly. (laughs) So he would, he really helped me with, um, applying for jobs and being a huge advocate for me, um, as a recommender, as someone who was a a reference. Um, John Parks is the kind of person that if he, if he believes that you're right for a job, he'll make a call, a cold call on your behalf for that job and say, Hey, I need to talk to you about this person. You need to you know you, you need to chat with them um and that is something that i really feel helped me out with getting my job at Graceland because of course i'm lucky to have a full-time job as someone who hasn't completed the doctorate yet and um i think that John Parks i mean was really in my corner and was like you know she'll she'll do a great job um and that that was i was really thankful for that for sure
0: yeah, do you know Megan Arndt? Yeah, her office is right there.
1: Oh so. uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Megan and I never overlapped at FSU, yeah. but we have um, met multiple times. And actually, I had Megan in virtually last semester to mm. do um, kind of a West African extravaganza. Oh, oh sweet, awesome. So yeah.
0: When I talked to John O'Neill, um, he said that he said that there was like a first. He said his first rehearsal, his, his first percussion ensemble rehearsal was like, it it was one of, I think it might've been the early years. Like it might've been one of the first years that he was like at FSU that the parks was. And he said something, it was something like, this will never happen again. Like it was, it went badly enough that every, like, it was like, oh, we are in a different place immediately.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah. You know, he has that capability for sure.
0: Yeah. There, there was no, there was no slight, there was no gradual transition. <laughs> that way. Do you go immediately to uh, Indiana after this?
1: I did. Again, I, I kind of was like, I'm not going to audition that many places for my doctorate because at this point I still thought I really liked elementary ed. Yeah. And I would be happy being an elementary music teacher and going into the workforce right now. But I also kind of want to see this through. So I only auditioned for two doctoral programs, Indiana University and um, Univers- University of Wisconsin-Madison. Mm, yeah. And I, I got into both places, which was great. Uh, Indiana actually had a TA available that they were um, you know going to offer me. And so I decided to go there, although I loved the program at University of Wisconsin-Madison too. Tony DeSanza was amazing. And I, I'm super into Brazilian stuff, so I thought this would – I thought both of them would be fantastic, but again, with money and with me having to work through school, I really had to look at the financial side. And um, and I went to Indiana, but in my so Indiana runs their auditions. Um, At least they did. The the faculty there's been some turnover. You know, Professor Spiro retired recently, and Professor Houghton retired recently. So there's they might have a different you know process now with the new faculty. But at that point they bring you in for the audition and then they bring you in for a five to 10 minute interview and the interview for the the doctoral. Exactly. Yeah. The interview was sort of, you know, well, what do you want to do? You know, tell us about yourself, just getting a sense for your personality, getting a sense for your ambitions Yeah,
2: Yeah.
1: and John parks was totally not wanting me to say this, but I'm a very honest person. So I, so I walked in there and they said, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, well, honestly, I really would be happy teaching elementary music. So if this doesn't work out, I'll probably teach elementary music and I'm not 100% sure exactly where I want to go. And at the time when John Parks was kind of coaching me through the interview, he was like, Melinda, do not say that. (laughs) Do not walk in and say that in front of John Tafoya and Kevin Bobo and Michael Spiro. (laughs) Do not do that. And I went in there and did it. (laughs) So who knows? Maybe it was a mistake, but I, I just was, wanted to be honest with them. And, um and then, you know, it, it ended up working out and I had a TA there where I could teach the steel band and uh, percussion methods and um did my coursework for about three and a half years. And then, yeah, now I'm, I'm going through the process of, um of finishing the doctorate. So I did my qualifying exams and got those done in July of 2019. And now I'm, writing the dissertation and trying to finish up the recitals.
0: Wait, so you, three and a half years. What, what, how, what's the half part?
1: I don't know if it was just because of how I did my particular coursework. Um, you can finish it in three, but I took like two summer classes my last summer semester there. So I did like fall, spring, fall, spring, fall, spring, summer.
0: Oh, I gotcha. Well, so kind, still kind of technically three years though.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was still technically three years. I remember finishing up, um, that, that summer I took Shankarian analysis because my outside area was music theory. And, um, I think maybe one other class and I was playing in some of the summer bands and things like that. And I finished, I pressed send on my Shankarian analysis program and just got immediately in my car to go record a CD with um, Omar Carmenades and the John Sothis Percussion Program or uh, Percussion Project down in um, you know Furman University in South Carolina. I mean, I I literally was like, hit send. All right, we're getting in the car, loaded my dog in the car, and left for the recording session.
0: <laughs> nice. Is there a like a date when you basically like run out of time?
1: There is. Um, and I don't, I you can't quote me on this because I'm not 100% sure. That, I mean, the good thing is that I'm not close to it at all. Okay. Um, I'm pretty sure it's about, I think it's like 10 years okay. from when you finish your last qualifying exam.
0: Oh, wow. Oh, it's that, I, mean, it's,
1: okay. I mean, I don't need to get there. We'll just hope and pray that I do not get there. Yeah. Um, but right now, I'm feeling good about the timeline again with working full time, it just takes longer. I'm okay with that. Um, that's just my, my been my path. Yeah. Um, I know people that did finish it faster. Um, but uh, I take a lot of my breaks and do quite a bit of writing because I know it gets really busy during the semester, prepping classes, grading things, dealing um, with, you know, life. Um, and so I, over winter break, I wrote about 40 pages. Um, and I, was, I was actively in like three writing groups that would meet multiple times a week. And I used a lot of my winter break to really focus on writing. And then now that we're in the spring again, I've done a little bit. It's definitely not as aggressive as a schedule as I can afford to do during the breaks.
0: Is there with your current job any requirement from the school that you finish at a certain point?
1: um not at the moment although you know my job right now is a non tenure track line um i was visiting uh this year i have i i'm not even sure if i don't think my students know this yet but i i'm going to work here next year um i've i've been confirmed to work here next year but it's a non tenure track line
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and I, I really get along with the faculty and they've expressed that they would like this to go tenure track of course i would like that too um if it did I would really probably have a deadline at that yeah. point. Yeah. But right now, as long as I'm making some progress, they're, you know, they're aware of it. They're very supportive. Um, they're like cheerleaders. <laughs> when I tell them I write wrote another couple pages, they're like, yeah, you go, you know. Yeah. So um, so yeah, I think it would become um a little more pressing if if the line went tenure track.
0: Yeah. So does that mean that you're is it still visiting or does it move into a different category? That's not tenure track, but it's like in, in, in between.
1: Yeah, no, it does. It moves into, um, a different category, which is a non-tenure track, but it's, um, assistant professor. Oh, I can't talk today. Assistant professor of uh, percussion and music business.
0: Similar question to, uh, you know, when you get to Florida state, what were the, what, what kind of things were you either seeking? What were the, what were the things that you were, Uh, going for as a student, as a doctoral student?
1: I guess, man, PASIC really has come up a couple times because, you know, I was really inspired to audition at Ohio State after I saw their showcase performance. And similarly, I was really inspired to go to Indiana after I saw the World Showcase performance that the IU Brazilian and Afro-Cuban Ensemble did. Um, And of course, that was under the direction of Michael Spiro, who's absolutely incredible, just player. I mean insane um the way that he can make congas sound <laughs> it's like just incredible and um i after i saw that performance you know i'd been doing the ethnomusicology certificate at florida state i was definitely really into steel pan brazilian irish indian music i had taken all these classes at florida state and i really wanted to keep studying non-western percussion or you know world percussion as they say um, and when I saw that showcase concert, I just thought I have to audition there. Um, and so, yeah, it became sort of on the short list of schools that I, you know, really wanted to check out. And also I was I was pretty excited to kind of move out of Florida at that point, because I I did I did start skiing. Not that there's skiing all that close to Indiana, um, except there is that one mountain. Well, hill. Yeah. That's,
2: <laughs> not,
1: that's not exactly Breckenridge.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. right.
1: So, um but yeah, I mean I I like having four seasons. And Bloomington, Indiana is one of the coolest towns to this day. I still love visiting there. Luckily, I do have some stuff that I still do there in conjunction with finishing the degree requirements, so I get to go there every few years. Um it is just such a cool place to live. A gorgeous campus. I mean, the campus looks amazing every season. In the spring, it's got tons of flowers. In the snow, it's like looks like Hogwarts. It's just really <laughs> awesome.
0: Now, who's who's funnier, uh, Bobo or Parks?
1: Oh, no. Don't make me do that. <laughs> <laughs> I got to plead the fifth on that
0: one. <laughs> well, it's different styles of humor. Uh, that's it's, for sure.
1: It's very different styles of humor. I'll say Bobo is goofier.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I would agree.
1: <laughs> he is goofier. Um, now, Bobo also has a no-nonsense side. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure.
0: I mean, I I've think- seen I've seen his students play like I like the guy knows what he's doing. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs>
1: the funny thing about Bobo is that he just plays everything as well as he plays marimba, and he's just more well known for the marimba. <laughs>
2: when
1: you see him play snare drum; it's the best snare drum you've ever seen. When you see him play marimba, it's the best marimba you've ever seen. When you see him play crash cymbals, it's the best crash cymbals you've ever heard. (laughs) So it's like he plays everything. Um, And he does it at such a high level. It's an intimidating person to walk into a lesson with, for sure. But he's a very kind person. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I've also had him on, fortunately. Oh,
1: awesome. Yeah,
0: yeah. It it was a lot of fun. Was there a lot more of the focus for what you did was like the world side was a huge, was ended up being like kind of the, the, the thing, the folk, the primary focus.
1: It was a, it was a primary focus for sure. But there, there are some people that study with Michael Spiro that, you know, are, um, really doing that 100%. And I think for me, I really also wanted to put a focus on the teaching side, the steel band side, um, and, um, you know, developing percussion methods curriculum. Um, and so I, I kind of did spread a little bit, um, there as far as, you know, I didn't just study with one person and there are, I mean, you can go there and just study with Professor Spiro. Oh, not now because he retired. But at that time, you can go there and just study with Professor Houghton and be a jazz drum set major. Um, And so, you know, some people would come in and that's what they knew they were going to do. But I came in and I knew I wanted to study at least one semester with everyone. Um, and I got, I got that accomplished when I was there. I got to study at least one semester with everyone. I did a little bit more with Professor Boa and Professor Spyro um, as far as the number of semesters, but I did get to study with everybody. And, you know, I really loved studying with Professor Houghton. He is such a great, like, pedagogue and has really good, um, just ideas about teaching and about curriculum and the sequence that you go through books and everything. And, um, he, his studio was very hard to get into only because he had so many drum set majors that he would have not a lot of room. So I'm really glad that I like slipped in. It was literally my last semester that I was able to slip in and get a a semester of drum set with him. So that was awesome.
0: Because there's plenty of method books. Like uh, how do you decide on that being your, you know, your, dissertation project.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I had taught percussion methods at um, Florida State and I taught percussion methods at Indiana. I loved teaching it. Like I said, I love any kind of like classroom teaching that has non-percussion majors um, and non-music majors. It's awesome. So, of course, you know, in percussion methods, you're dealing with music majors, but not percussionists. Um, And I just had such a ball doing it and, um, you know, kind of came up with some ideas through the years that ended up working for me. Um, so I think I wanted in initially to kind of do like a survey of percussion methods. Like what what are people doing around the country? Um, but Indiana University is, you know, a really um, strict school as far as their requirements for doc- doctorate programs. And they said like, okay, cool. We like this topic. But it's not enough. So do more. You know what? What else can you do? And I honestly think it was Professor Bobo who said, "Hey, you've taught a lot of percussion methods. Write a book." And I was like, "You're one fourth of the committee. If you tell me to write a book, I guess I'll do it." <laughs> so, um, so at that point, I kind of decided to do that. And, um, you know, when I was focusing on finishing my qualifying exams and really studying for that and doing my first job, I really got very little done with the book. I had like a concept in my head. So I really dug into the book. I would say starting in 2018 and 2019 really started to sit down and actually put like words on paper, you know, um, the concept behind my book is that it will be like a class in a box because if you know and are familiar with a lot of the percussion methods textbooks you still have to design a curriculum um you still have to make tests you still have to make assignments handouts things like that and a lot of my friends who teach percussion methods end up supplementing a ton with other things or just not using a book at all and just getting a you know, different mix of materials together. Um, and the other thing I feel really passionate about, I've brought this up a couple times in the podcast is I worked my way through school. I could not afford textbooks. Um, and I um, am really looking into uh, providing my textbook as a OER, an op- open educational resource
2: okay, so yeah.
1: available for free. Um, I, I did all of my textbook reading as, as I was going through school on reserve. Yeah. Um, and so I was in the library checking out the reserve book for two hours, taking my notes, um, mm-hmm. basically starting in my master's degree. I just thought I, I can't, I don't have a budget for textbooks. You know, I hardly have a budget for bananas right now. <laughs> so, um,
0: Pizza Hut,
1: I guess, right, exactly. <laughs> well, luckily I got all those points saved up, <laughs> <laughs>
0: but you got to use, don't forget.
1: <laughs> I know, exactly. So, um, so I, uh, I'm going to include PowerPoints slides for each chapter. Um, I'm going to include any handouts that I've written over the years. Now, if someone looks at the book and says, I don't like your PowerPoint, I want to make my own, that's fine. But I guess the option for my book is if you don't want to lift a finger, it's all here for you. Um, and that's also one thing that's making it take a little bit longer when I'm working on my dissertation. Some days I'm actually writing the dissertation and some days I'm working on a PowerPoint and downloading pictures from the internet <laughs> to put in the PowerPoint slides. And, and some days I'm working on handouts and some days I'm working on snare exercises. So it, it's a bit overwhelming if I think of everything that eventually has to go into it, yeah, but yeah. I'm also really toying around with the idea of, um, Releasing it in like two rounds, essentially, and kind of doing the core instruments as the first five chapters, which is what I've really been focusing on. And then releasing um, percussion ensemble, drum set, any other supplemental chapters as like a second volume, I guess. So it's kind of still in the works as far as how that will go.
0: So I'm going to get I'm going to jump right in with the final segment, which is the random ask questions segment. Oh, boy. So <laughs> Okay, first question. The issue in percussion education or percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts.
1: I feel really strongly about having a really well-rounded undergraduate education. Um, So I would say that when I see, you know, a junior or senior recital program and it's nine marimba pieces, and like one snare drum piece, that bothers me. (laughs) Because I feel like that's more graduate school, you know, you want to specialize, do it. Um, And I think, you know, that it's a little irresponsible not to get students playing as much of the other instruments as possible, especially since that's where they're going to make some money, and students need money, right? So they need to be doing drum set enough to play a cover band gig or a jazz combo gig or a musical. They need to be doing jazz vibes at least a little bit to hack it on a jazz, you know, gig, something small. Um, they need to be, you know, doing steel pans so that they could maybe play a wedding. Like I got to play a wedding in my undergrad on, you know, a steel pan trio and, um, you know, they, they need to be, um, doing marching percussion. Hopefully there's a component of that because they're going to be teching drum lines and getting some extra cash that way. So yeah, I'd say just that really early specialization in one instrument or another is it's in most cases not going to really serve the student. There's some exceptions, of course, but
0: mm-hmm.
1: in most cases, yeah, that, that, that bothers me. <laughs>
0: Do, do you um, work with or or worry about how so because sometimes you could have the student who that student really just wants to do the like maybe because of they the what um you know like the kind of lessons maybe they've had before where they really want to do they're like I'm ready to do all marimba and and you're the, you're like hang on do you have that does that have you had those situations come up
1: I've been lucky in that my students really um, understand where I'm coming from. I try to tell them a lot of personal anecdotes. Um, You know, as soon as I tell them, hey, in my undergrad, I got $500 for playing a drum set musical called Camp Rock. <laughs> and you know, and then they say like as a student and I mean, let's be honest, even for me now as an adult in this day and age, $500 is a great supplement to your income and you're like, "Ooh, if I could do that, let's let's do it." So once they hear those personal anecdotes and once they hear that, you know, why, the reasons why, and I think that's something that I really got from Jeff Moore was he would never, ever tell you something without telling you the 14 reasons why we were doing that thing. So I like to tell my students why that, that I think is a better teaching technique. No one wants to just hear, well, you have to do that. Well, why? well, because that's how it is. So do it. Well, that's not going to stick. But if you say, well, for these 10 reasons, you should, you should do this, then it's like, oh yeah, okay, cool. And then if they decide not to do that, then they have to have 10 or 11 better reasons than you just listed. So, yeah, I, I think um, luckily a lot of my students have not really fallen down that that path. They pretty, pretty much subscribe to that idea of being w- really well-rounded. Although I, I have a student who is very dear to me. He might listen to this podcast um, and he's, he's uh, a student of mine from Graceland. He loved marching percussion, loved. And he would come into my office and say, hey, let's play cheesy poofs (laughs) or let, you know, let's do these, like, you know, play these like Blue Devils licks or, oh, hey, I found this SCV lick. You want to learn it with me? And I'd be like, well, have you practiced your marimba piece Mm -hmm. have you worked on this for concert band you know the band director told me you weren't playing it well the other day have you worked on this this and this okay we can play that for 30 minutes then you go practice something else
0: right no yeah it you're that's great because you're doing the um i'll be more than happy to work with you on this but you've got to do the other thing and then yeah let's you know, let's play some drum corps and parade. You know, whatever, yeah. wherever you want.
1: <laughs> let's pat it up. We'll yeah, pat
0: exactly. it up in the office. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> First, you have to go set up concert toms yeah. and work on this band piece. <laughs>
0: gotcha. All right. Uh, next question. I you you kind of answered this already, but I'm going to ask it again, just if you have other insights to it. But the way I phrase it is, um, being a woman in the mostly male percussion field, and your thoughts.
1: Sure. Um, well, yeah, I mean, like we said a little earlier in our conversation, I have been really lucky. Um, as I grew up, I felt no, or I would say not, not zero, but very, very little discrimination based on sex. Um, and I, I just credit that to the fact that I grew up in a, an area that had great music educators. Um, The drumline technicians and stuff, you know, I I came up in drumline mostly. The drumline techs were um, super welcoming. Uh, Females, males, you know, it didn't matter. Uh, It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a big deal. Um, Then when I marched drum corps, again, the guys on the snare line um, kind of took me under their wing a little bit. I mean, it was never, I guess it was never discussed. Actually I have this quote. So there was an awesome, um, female snare drummer that marched Santa Clara Vanguard recently within the last few years. And I believe her name is Elena and, uh, girls March, Mm -hmm. uh, Rachel Taylor's group, who I know, Rachel was also a a guest on your podcast. Um, you know, kind of was do, were doing these um, little bios, like mini bios on their Instagram page and Elena was one of them. And I wrote down this quote, cause I liked it so much. So I have it like in a note in my phone. It just says, for me, being a girl in drumline, it's always been a normal thing for me. I've always been a girl in drumline. So coming here, and she's referring to um, Santa Clara, it was like, I was used to it, but the entire world wasn't. And so, you know, obviously I'm really honored but it's like I'm just here to be a snare drummer, not to be a girl snare drummer. And I guess I was lucky to feel that way because no one made a big deal of it either way. Um, I didn't feel different. Uh, I felt proud of myself. I, I did feel sometimes that I was representing a whole, you know, group just just me alone and I, I think sometimes at moments where it was hard and I you know could have said like oh I'm not feeling well or I'm gonna sit out I thought like nope I really want to represent myself well I want these guys to know that women can get out there and you know hold their own um, and and so yeah I think maybe there was just a little bit of um, extra responsibility I felt maybe but also I was just I mean if you're playing well, and you're cool to be around, it kind of doesn't matter if you're a guy or a girl. And similarly, if you're a male, and you're not playing well, and you're not cool to be around, I think they're going to experience more discrimination sometimes than than I did. Um, And again, that was that was just my experience. And I know that there's women out there that I've talked to personally, that didn't have experience. And I hope that I hope that I continue to be more and more of the norm as we get better educators that you know, are not going to discriminate. But yeah, I I think I was just lucky. I think that the only place that I might have felt just like a tiny bit of discrimination actually was more the orchestral world than the drumline world. Um, And again, I think it's more of when you get there and you're subbing somewhere and it's all guys and they've never seen you play that it's like, huh, you feel like maybe they're not talking to you quite as much. Maybe they're talking to their, you know, the male members of the section and they're you're sort of like, you know. But but again, as soon as you start playing, for me, that always just kind of leveled everything. And um, and I, I think that if you do your homework, you play well, then um, they kind of almost like welcome you into the club, whether you're a female or male. And again, if you're a male and you didn't do your homework and you're playing like crap, that's not going to look good either, right? So you just have to kind of, regardless of being of male or female, just play well and and be someone who people want to work with. Um, and yeah, I mean that's just been that's just been my experience.
2: Yeah, I always
1: feel a little weird answering this because I do know people who have had a completely different experience and they have been discriminated against. So I just I don't want to sound insensitive to that, um, but I can only answer the way that I've. <laughs> experienced it.
0: What about for you, the, has the, has it been the same in the band world when you were in that? Was that any different or is that the same?
1: Yeah. I I don't remember any experiences and, you know, mostly in the band world, I've played with some brass bands, brass band of central Florida. Um, I have played, you know, of course with uh, the Indiana university Wind Ensemble Orchestra, et cetera, the um, Florida State Orchestra and band. Um, And I think there, again, the studios were just full of cool people and um, people that are still some of my best friends, probably people who you've interviewed. But, you know, being in a section with, um, you know, at Florida State with people like Tommy Dobbs, um, I mean, he's awesome. You know, his teacher um, at UNF was a female, you know, he so one of his biggest mentors is a female. And I never felt any um, discrimination, you know, whatsoever from from any of those section members Um, at the at at the University of Central Florida. You know, some of my um, fellow section members there were women, you know. Yeah. So I I think uh, that was. I think, I, yeah, I think I was lucky in the band world as well.
0: Great. I move on to some uh, lighter fare, we'll say. Let's see. What is the most impractical item of clothing you own? <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh my gosh.
1: You know, up until recently, it was uh, a little orphan Annie costume. <laughs>
2: That was like
1: sitting in the back of my closet. Uh, So our wind ensemble at my previous job uh, at Graceland or actually the orchestra, they used to do a Halloween concert. And I played, um, I played a little feature with them on the Halloween concert. And I borrowed a little orphan Annie costume and wig from my colleague who was the choir director there. And, for years, it just sat in my closet, <laughs> and I, you know, was like, "Oh my gosh, I have to get you back that Annie costume." And she was like, "It's okay, I'm not probably going to use it, <laughs> very recent, you know. It, it's okay, you can keep, you can hold on to it." So I held on to it literally until I think the day that I moved away from Iowa. And then I dropped off the uh, little orphan Annie <laughs> costume back to my colleague right before I moved to Colorado. <laughs>
0: She was still like, I, I really don't need this.
1: Yeah, I. <laughs> here you go. All right, I'll, I'm going to move to Colorado now. Bye. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was literally one of the last things I did on the last day.
0: That I was in That's when you you say you're leaving, and then you go, and then you walk back. It's like, oh, I forgot, I forgot to give this back, and then drop it, and then bail, and then like yeah. in the car before <laughs> she has a chance to even like what was?
1: Right. Exactly.
0: <laughs> nice. All right. Uh, has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it?
1: So, um, my friend, Omar Carmenades mm-hmm. uh, is a hundred percent convinced that I sound exactly like Jennifer Lawrence. And that when he and his wife, Nicole watch, Jennifer Lawrence interviews, whatever she might be on, you know, Jay Leno or this and that, um, that he swears that if he closes his eyes, it's like, I'm talking. So I would have to say that Jennifer Lawrence is nailing an impression of me all the time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I kind of hear it. I have to be honest. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And I'm like, well, you know what? She seems cool.
0: Yes. Yes, exactly. That's, that's, that's a good one. Holy cow. All right. Um, All right. What's a great movie and what's a terrible movie?
1: My top five favorite movies of all time.
0: Okay.
1: Number one, Point Break.
0: (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Nice.
1: Uh, And then two through five are basically all equal. So I'm going to list them in really no particular order. Uh, It's Alien, Aliens, Terminator 1, and Terminator 2.
0: Wow.
1: So all action
0: yeah. movies for for yeah. Melinda. <laughs>
1: yeah, so all action movies. Yeah. And then after that you get into um more indie flicks. Like I have this side of my personality that really loves like Wes Anderson, you know, really indie kind of um super emotional quirky kind of movies. So for example, Lost in Translation, I love I Heart Huckabee's, which a lot of people haven't seen. I love that one. That's love- a bizarre one, yes. Oh yeah, for sure. I <laughs> love the Royal Tenenbaums, but oh, for whatever yes. for whatever reason, my top five favorite movies um, are all action movies, and um, my dogs are both named after characters from The Terminator and Aliens. So my older dog is named Reese, and that's for Kyle Reese, of course, who appeared in Terminator 1 and the extended edition of Terminator 2. And, uh, and then my other dog, my newer puppy, is Hudson, and that's for Private Hudson, which was Bill Paxton's character in Aliens. So I would say, what is a great movie? Well, all five of those are incredible. I will stand by it. Point Break is amazing. If anyone wants to fight me, if anyone wants to fight me, (laughs) bring them down. I will fight it. I will fight it to the death. What's a terrible movie?
0: Wait, before you get to the terrible movie, so what's your favorite Wes Anderson? Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, I think it's The Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, Yeah, but I love Life Aquatic also yeah and you know i really dig the soundtrack to i mean his movies have great soundtracks of course um life aquatic has some awesome music from sayo george yeah who is all the, all the david bowie covers exactly so yeah. that's super cool
0: yeah.
1: um and i even think there's some um oh icelandic amazing instrumental band Sigur rose Yep, there's even yep. some cigaros on there that's really, really nice. And um, so, yeah, so I would say those two are, are my favorite. But Royal Tenenbaums, I, can, I could watch that any day, over and um, over.
0: Well, we weren't married at the time, but my wife and I saw that in a theater in some random town. <laughs> and it was like us and, you know, like, it was a small crowd. We'll say that. You know, like, yeah. And there are moments in that movie um, we were – Dying, like couldn't keep it together, and like literally, no one else is is like even remotely thinks it's funny. It's like a scene where there's a bunch of there's these paintings in the back where like yes. they have, like the people with like the wolf heads or something like that. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like they just kept flashing to that, and of course, it's being Wes Anderson. There's no commentary about it. Yeah, of and- course. And we were just like, we could not keep it together.
1: <laughs> and that's and, when you knew you were meant for each other?
0: Yes, right. <laughs> and, and uh, but the other thing is that uh, that movie is hilarious because there's so many people who just flat didn't get it. And totally. like, it just didn't connect. And you're like, okay, it's, and they'd be like, this is the, the worst movie I've ever seen. I'm like, it's, you just, it didn't work for you. It's okay.
1: <laughs> right. And I've, I've had friends that watch I Heart Huckabees and they're like, uh... <laughs>
0: I think okay. that's, that's a harder case to make for high hard Huckabees.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but you know, now I'm just thinking of like, what's a terrible movie. You know, I once went to a movie theater in Tallahassee and one of the, all the workers there had this little sign on there that said my, my favorite movie is blank. I guess it was like a little thing to, you know, get to know your movie theater attendance better mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. And so we went and the guy that tore our tickets, his, his little button or whatever said my favorite movie is the Hangover Two. And I was like, is is your favorite movie actually The Hangover Two? Like I this is gonna make me sound really just awful. This is the part of the podcast where people will be like, oh this girl's annoying. <laughs> but I just don't like newer movies. I don't I mean first of all, as much as I love Point Break, I will never see the Point Break remake. I have no interest in it. I have no interest in reboots. I have no interest in the 10 extra Batmans and the 10 extra Spider-Mans that have come out. I have no interest in like, you know, newer action flicks that are just like all about the budget and not really about the plot. I, you know, so I'd say it has to be really good to get me to a theater I think the last movie that I saw in a theater that I really loved was Slumdog Millionaire. So that gives you an idea of how often I go to the theater.
0: Oh, that, that's over a decade old at this point.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, I mean, so you're not, so like the, the superhero thing is not your thing, obviously. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I get you. The one that I would, that would be interesting if you wanted to see it is the um, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse.
1: Uh, i did hear is that like sort of the almost cart- cartoonish one yeah
0: it's a it's a animated but it also brings in uh all like all of these different other versions of it into one story it, i in the theater i haven't seen it since the th- but in the theater it was mind blowing i mean it was so good and i'm not a big i'm not a big uh you know comic book fan right that was one that i i thought was incredible so
1: yeah, I, I, I did hear that that was good. And yeah. also, um, I did see Deadpool. I thought that was mm. pretty funny. Yeah. I thought that was a good kind of quirky way to do it. You know, almost mm. like making fun of itself. Um, yeah. and, and so I did appreciate that one. But most, I mean, gosh, I've never seen one minute of Avengers. I know people yep. are going to be mad at me, but <laughs> just not interested.
0: Yeah. Oh, Zombieland.
1: Oh. Uh, I've seen
0: Zombieland. Emma... Emma Stone, Bill Murray. That was funny. Okay.
1: Yeah, that was funny. That was good. I liked that.
0: That's in the, like, that's more, that's like in the, in the Deadpool vein and kind of same kind of thing.
1: Yeah, it's like a situation where, you know, you're, you're definitely going to die, but everyone's still being hilarious. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, that was good. And, you know, zombie movies, um, I mean, I love 28 Days Later. Of course, there's a huge (laughs) controversy whether that is a zombie movie or not. And you could, um, I think you, you, uh, interviewed Justin Alexander yeah. here and he loves zombie movies. And I was, you know, close friends with him down at FSU. Um, I think we probably had an argument about whether that was a zombie movie or not, but, um, 28 days later is fantastic. Oh, it's funny. And it's English. Yeah.
0: Is- oh oh um Sean of, uh, of, of the Dead
1: that's the one yeah Sean of the Dead that's that's also got that very like quirky kind of humor which is good yeah I thought those were good
0: yeah have you have you seen Hot Fuzz no oh that's I mean I don't you haven't really mentioned cop movies but that one's another I mean it's the same guys and it's there's a whole lot of just awesome <laughs> it's another fun one if you're so awesome but you might maybe check that one out. That one's old. I mean, that one's from like, that's like 15 years old at this point. So it still might be in your wheelhouse.
1: Oh yeah, um, yeah. That's, that's better for me. <laughs> I like the classics. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right, what is your favorite book?
1: So I, man, again, with these action things, I love the author Clive Cussler. Oh yeah, yeah. And Clive Cussler actually recently passed away, but he wrote this series um, about this action star named Dirk Pitt. And he's got this Dirk Pitt, you know, series of over 20 or 30 books at this point. And I've read every single one of them. So if you go into my house, I've got a bookshelf, you know, the bookshelf from Ikea that everyone got, like the first bookshelf that everyone owned. I think it's the Billy bookcase. (laughs) (laughs) So on the top of my Ikea bookcase, the very top row is all the Clive Cussler, Dirk Pitt novels in order. And um, that is all I read for years. Now, I like classics, too. Um, in fact, I'm rereading Pride and Prejudice now, and I love Pride and Prejudice. So I promise I'm not just a total like action junkie. <laughs> <laughs> but those Clive Cussler books, they're awesome. They're fun. They can help you escape, help you de-stress. Um, They're really good stories. You know, I've described it as like, it's like James Bond, but sort of a more gritty, outdoorsy, scuba diving James Bond. (laughs) And, um, and he's got the funny sidekick and everything. And um, it's always like there's some evil person doing something horrible and Dirk Pitt is going to find a way to save the universe once again. Um, while while making witty one-liners <laughs> the whole time, right? So, um, I do really love those books, and um, Clive Custer wrote some other novels, and and he has some other series. And I actually haven't dived into those. It's very specifically the Dirk Pitt novels. Um, so yeah, if you haven't checked them out, you should. Then the movie came out, which is okay. It's called Sahara,
2: and oh, it yeah. Navigate- yeah.
1: Matthew McConaughey. Right. So if people have no idea what I'm talking about with these Dirk Pitt novels and Clive Cussler, I say, well, did you see Sahara? Okay, Sahara is a Clive Cussler novel and Matthew McConaughey played Dirk Pitt. I do have a problem with that because in the book, Dirk Pitt's eyes are green and his hair is black. It's like very specific. And Matthew McConaughey does not have green eyes and does not have black hair. So I had a slight problem with the casting, but
0: well, I isn't there? Weren't there a number of problems with that movie? Um, I remember there's some controversy. I don't remember what they were about, but I remember reading about controversies about that film specifically.
1: Oh my gosh, there could have been. I'm not even sure.
0: Okay, I, I'll look it <laughs> up. But yeah, uh, that's that's a lot. Because doesn't he? Because the thing is like the Custler novels, I, I have not read any of, of any version of Custler, but I be- doesn't he write like some um, Nate like a, a nautical like doesn't he have uh ones that are action movies that are like on the water, uh yes. maybe have to do with submarines or something like that.
1: Oh yeah. There's um there's a couple themes. Classic yeah. cars. There's always classic cars. And Clive Cussler himself was a classic car collector. Mm-hmm. Um there's always planes. Some sort of warplane. Um, he mentions very specific models of planes and um, very specific things about aviation in all his novels. Uh, and then Dirk Pitt is a scuba diver, um, and they uh, they have an agency in the book that's sort of made up called the National Underwater Marine Agency or NUMA. And so sometimes you'll look and it'll it'll say like the NUMA files or something like that. And so, yeah, I mean, Clive Custler actually, I'm pretty sure he actually created a NUMA organization and he went around and, um, got some shipwrecks up that had never been, you know, discovered. And, um, and he did some things for, you know, underwater exploration and things like that in his real life. And so there's a lot of themes in his book that kind of follow what he was interested in, in his life as well. Cool. Yeah.
0: I think my, um, my father in law, I think his uh, he's big into uh like World War II level things and the um i have to think of the author, um Tom Clancy.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The um like Hunt for October, but also all the um the ones that have to do with intel like military intelligence, stuff like that. Yeah. So
1: Oh yeah, that's a lot a lot of um themes in, in his novels for sure military intelligence, um, presidential, you know, kidnapping the president. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) I hear you. What is your biggest kitchen mess up?
1: Well, I'm, I'm a pretty good cook. (laughs) So honestly, my kitchen mess ups are usually not cooking related. I love to cook. My parents taught me to cook when I was growing up. Um, I was I was so into cooking that even from my freshman year at University of Central Florida, I got an apartment-style dorm just so I could have a kitchen because I I couldn't imagine life without being able to cook breakfast. Like I, it wasn't a thing. Like I couldn't imagine just going to a dining hall and getting your all of your meals. Like that was like what people do. No, so I had a, you know an apartment-style dorm and we had a kitchen and a living room, which which was cool. So um, I think my biggest kitchen mishaps would be the way that my kitchen looks after I cook. Oh, sure. Because I am notoriously bad at dishes. And so, um, you know, when I moved to Colorado, literally the very top of my list when I was looking for rental homes was, is there a dishwasher? Um, Because I... I mean, it's bad. It gets bad. It, <laughs> it's like, uh, it's just my, my family refers to it as having a dishuation, and I, I would often have a pretty bad dishuation in my house. So now that I have the dishwasher, I don't have as many, as many kitchen mishaps, which is great. Nice. You know, there was one time where I made Thanksgiving dinner for all the people at Florida state that didn't have a place to go. So it was a big mix of all instrumentalists. A lot of percussionists were there. A lot of other instrumentalists that weren't traveling home. And I, um, started cooking the turkey in the morning and big, big Turkey, you know, X, you know, 15 pounds, 16 pounds, something like that. And I set it on a timer and my oven was the kind of oven where when the timer goes off, it turns the oven off also. And I didn't realize that. So the timer went off. I looked at the temperature. I was like, okay, it's not cooked yet. But then I left it in there for like another hour or two without realizing that the oven had turned off and it was cold. And so I almost killed a bunch of people at Florida State with a raw turkey, I guess. That, that was kind of a mishap. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> Should this take this long? No. (laughs) (sighs) It's actually
1: getting colder. How's this happening?
0: (laughs) (laughs) What is your best non-life-threatening injury?
1: When I was in sixth grade, uh, I had a staph infection that um, was internal. It settled in my elbow joint. And I um, had no idea what was wrong. Uh, One day, I just couldn't move my arm. Um, It was like a couple days before sixth grade started. And um, my arm just started hurting. And within 24 hours, I couldn't move my arm at all. And it was huge and swollen and bright red and like boiling hot to the touch. So I went to... A couple different doctors and I was taking a ton of pain meds I was in like terrible pain this was before I started playing drums <laughs> so this was I was in choir at this point but I didn't start drums until seventh grade and uh, my parents took me to the ER and they put me in an MRI and they said like we have a hunch we, we think we might know what's wrong and then yeah it, it turned out that their hunch was right and I was in there for emergency surgery by the next day and, um, they, they did, uh, surgery, cleaned out the elbow. I was on six weeks of intravenous meds, uh, missed the first eight weeks or so of sixth grade and had to enroll in phone school, <laughs> which is a thing that, you know, for, um, children in the hospital and things like that. And, um, had to go to a bunch of physical therapy which I guess is, is really good. All the physical therapy helped me. Um, and I'm able to actually extend my arm, but a lot of people who have this and they don't have the proper physical therapy, they can't fully extend their arm for the rest of their life. Mm. So, um, yeah. And, and then it was about a two month ordeal and now I just have a little tiny scar from it. So. Wow. I guess that was kind of life threatening. Yeah. But we caught it it early. So.
0: No, I, yeah, those are, I don't. I don't know that I've I've talked to too many people who've who've had those. But every time I've heard about it, it sounds like the most. Like if you survive it, it's it's you're pretty lucky. Yeah. Pretty. It, it gets incredibly serious, incredibly fast. Like it's unlike for you. It did.
1: Yeah. You you can go septic if that's you know. And there's all different types of staph infections. Some of them are like more um, skin related, so they're like more topical. And then some of them are in. The joints like mine, some of them are in your blood. That's really bad. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you can go septic um, pretty pretty quickly if they don't catch it. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I was lucky. But the doctors were really stumped. Like it was like the third or fourth doctor that we saw that figured it out. Mm-hmm. A couple doctors just sent me home saying nothing's wrong. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean nothing's wrong? <laughs> My arm is three times its normal size. That's horrible.
0: Oh boy! Hmm. All right, well, few more. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> These are fun.
0: What is a non music related goal that you still have for your life?
1: I've had the goal of finishing my doctorate for such a long time now that i've um I haven't thought about non music related goals really very often. <laughs> Is this sad that I can't think of something that's non-music related?
0: <laughs> Again, Melinda, this have, is where the editing comes in, as I say. Have
1: you just have you just had anybody flat out say no? I don't have one.
0: I don't know if they've I've said no on this question. I mean, they've definitely uh, been like, "I don't really have anything for that," and you know, it gets it gets it gets cut. Uh,
1: okay. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I can skip I, the
0: question. It's not a big deal.
1: I I legitimately well, I mean, and this is going to make me sound really like. I don't know, conceded or something. There's been a couple non-music goals that I've had that I've recently achieved. Um, so for example, uh, last year in June, I got certified to be an exercise instructor, Mm. um, through Zumba. And that was a goal that I had for a really long time, ever since undergrad when I would attend exercise classes. Um, so doing that was a big deal for me. And, um, now I teach virtual classes every week and, um, you know, have some of my music students that actually come to my virtual class. So it's kind of like the meeting of both worlds. But yeah, I, I kind of achieved that goal last year, which is awesome. Also, I I always wanted to live somewhere where I could go skiing within a couple hours. And and I, I always used to say, like, I would love to live somewhere where on a random weeknight, I could just decide to go to the slopes. Mm-hmm. But now I live in Colorado, which is super cool because it, so I sort of got to that place as well. And I got to tell you, like my dissertation is taking up 100% of my goal space for, for, <laughs> for now. So yeah. okay, <laughs> cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> I have no goals.
0: <laughs> yeah. One specific, once that goal is done, then the other goals will flood back in. Yeah.
1: The then I can actually remember what else I do with my time. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. I mean, it's sad, but true on getting that done. All right a uh, couple more um what is either the strangest most bizarre or funniest performance moment that involves you
1: i played this festival down at university of central florida called collide
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's um Th- dr thad anderson um set it up and it was all about like newer percussion composing and things like that And I was really nervous, Um, and I was playing this piece by Jonathan Colm, K-O-L-M. And me and some other alumni of University of Central Florida had um, split up the movement. So it was a four-movement piece, and I was playing movement one and four, and then Joe Moore was playing, I think, movement three, and I can't remember, but another alum was playing movement two. So we were all sitting on stage. We had chairs, and we would kind of walk up, play our movement, and then go sit And, you know, so we were in view of the audience and I was, I was very nervous because third coast percussion was in the audience and Paul Lansky was the keynote speaker and he was in the audience too. Wow. And I started playing this movement and, um, this all just had this horrible domino effect happened. I accidentally hit like a wood block or something in such a way that it knocked my music off the stand. The stand kind of knocked over. The music fell down. The wood blocks all fell down. My mallets fell. Like everything that could possibly fall fell. And I'm just looking out there, you know, at third coast percussion, like looking back at me (laughs) and Paul Lansky, like just thinking this is This is one of the worst things that's ever happened. Um, And so, you know, of course, I get my stuff back up. I finish out the movement. But don't forget, I was also playing movement four. So then I had to sit on the stage and just feel all the feelings while, while Joe and my other friend played movements two and three and get back up there. And play movement four. So I think the victory there was that I played movement four really well with no no problems, after just completely massacring movement one and dropping all of my stuff all over the stage. Um, So yeah, I guess there's a lesson there somewhere. (laughs) Persevere, I guess.
0: Yeah.
1: Don't run away. Don't run away and cry, even if that's what you want to do.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean you it's really hard to crawl into a shell on stage. I'm going to guess.
1: Yeah. (laughs) But if, but if you could do it, I would have done it at that moment.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's like the invisibility cloak from Harry Potter. Like, can I just put that 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 on myself?
1: That would have been perfect (laughs) for that moment.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that that is, that is
2: impressive.
0: (laughs) It's an impressive recovery. That, that, that is Thank that you. Quality stuff there. <laughs> All right. And Melinda, last question. What is one piece of art could be music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, etc. that has impacted you the most recently?
1: Mm, I'm trying to decide if I should say something profound or if I should uh...
0: go with point break. Yeah.
1: Yeah, right. Exactly. Go with point break. <laughs> um, oh, you know what? I know exactly what I'm going to say. A couple months ago, I saw the movie Call Me By Your Name. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, my, my colleague here, um, Dr. Matthew Valverde, who teaches vocals here at Adams State, we were hanging out at his house, and I don't, I don't even remember how it came up. But he said, oh, yeah, check, check out this movie. And I watched the movie, cried like a baby, watched the movie again the very next night, Uh, bought the book, finished the book, bought the soundtrack. Um, I Still to this day, I can't listen to uh, the song Visions of Gideon by Sufjan Stevens, which is on that soundtrack, without crying. I mean, if you put it on right now during this podcast, I'd just lose it. (laughs) So I would say that um, it kind of encompasses like three forms of art. You know, the original book, then the movie – that it was based off, and then the soundtrack. I mean, run and watch it now. <laughs> it's beautiful, romantic, um, weird, uh, sad, poignant, sexy. It's like everything that you want art to be, in my opinion. Some people might not like it. It's um, it's definitely got some racy moments. Um, But the connection between the two characters um, is pretty incredible. And the way that all the music fits in and the soundtrack is interesting. It's got a lot of Sufjan Stevens. It's also got a lot of John Adams Um, and it has some, you know, Bach in the in the soundtrack. I mean, it just covers so many different genres and every song and every piece that they pick for each scene is so incredibly perfect for that scene so yeah i mean it it's still to this day if i just think about certain scenes in the movie i just get like filled with this just emotion so yeah definitely if you haven't seen it see it
0: (laughs) yeah it's really good there's a a lot of bike riding too uh a a lot lot of a a lot of bike riding on random roads in the middle of Tuscany. you know just like hey it's pretty italy we'll just uh there's another scene where we're on bikes it's awesome you know
1: yeah yep a lot of bike riding a lot of great 80s music psychedelic furs (laughs) um so if you're listening to my ski playlist that i made um you know that a lot of it is that soundtrack (laughs) it's not good though to cry on a ski hill so really don't I would not suggest crying as you're uh, going down like a blue.
0: No, no, because it turns out that the water will fog up the yeah, goggles.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's difficult. a problem
0: because you need to be able to see while right. you're skiing. It turns like, out
1: slightly important. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I had to end up taking the Sufian Stevens off that ski list, but the psychedelic furs are, are still on there. <laughs>
0: Awesome. All right, Melinda, we are done.
1: Well, that was great. Yeah. Also, I just kind of wanted to say I um, recently heard about your podcast, but kind of when you contacted me. So I've been listening back to a couple of the episodes and I listened to Connor's episode and I'm now going through John O'Neill's episode because we're collaborating on some stuff coming up here soon. Um, But yeah, it's it's really fun. I'm glad that um, you contacted me and that I discovered it. And I'm, I'm excited to look through the archives and yeah.
0: Oh, well, thanks. I'm glad you're, you're, you're connecting with those other episodes. So, so much fun to chat with Melinda over these past two episodes. I look forward to more future vigorous defenses of action movies from the 1980s and 90s, and to much more from her on the professional horizon, including, hopefully, the chance to actually meet in person soon. This week's rave is the 2021 PBS American Masters documentary, Never Too Late, The Doc Severinsen Story, now streaming on PBS. I am actually old enough to remember Doc Severinsen in his best-known role as the band leader for the Johnny Carson Tonight Show Band. While I only watched The Tonight Show occasionally in my youth, I definitely remember him for leading the band as well as for the famously outlandish outfits he wore on a regular basis. I mean, of course, I was aware the band was good, but you remember what you remember. In any case, the thing that's wild that at the ripe young age of 93, he still seems to be performing. He's kept himself in incredible physical shape and appears to be still mentally firing on all cylinders, which is even more impressive and definitely a thing to aspire to. I developed a healthy amount of respect for him as a musician when at some point, likely in the late 90s or early 2000s, after he left The Tonight Show, we got to see him and his big band live, and I recall it being awesome. His band was stacked with excellent players, and amongst them, the late Ed Shaughnessy on drum set. There are a couple other important notes from this fun documentary. One, while not spending an enormous amount of time on it, the film discusses his four marriages and his current relationship with emeritus trumpet professor Kathy Leach. One item that gets brought up is his dedication to his instrument and his need to perform, and how that meant that something else was likely going to get short shrift. And at times, that was his personal relationships. He also talked somewhat openly about his issues with drugs and alcohol, particularly in his early years as a touring and session jazz musician. Two, speaking of which, my favorite line from the whole thing, regarding his early career as a session musician all you needed to do was hit a high F with a hangover and not puke all over yourself, and you could keep your job. And three, that dedication to his instrument was really the prominent theme throughout. With interviews with other jazz and pop artists and prominent performers like Arturo Sandoval and Chris Botti, they make it very clear that no performer was ever as dedicated to one instrument for as long as Doc has been to the trumpet. There's a ton of awesome performance footage of him at rehearsals, at concerts, and from The Tonight Show, where Carson gave him leeway to showcase the band as a featured act. That is probably not how it would work now, because those performances tend to be more focused on YouTube and Instagram, among other locations. But that show, at its peak, was watched by so many people, That his influence is pretty vast. A really fun and engaging experience? Check out Never Too Late, the Doc Severinsen story on PBS, streaming now. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, The Episodes show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at PetePerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.